Thank you, Jennifer. I, I love this passage for so many reasons, and I always get something new out of it every single time I read it. But before we dive into that, let's just close our eyes and have a quick prayer as we reset into this time of dissecting the Word. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. Uh, God, we are here because we want to know what you have to say. Uh, we want to know what is important to you. Uh, God, we ask that uh, by one way or another, God, that you would change our hearts this morning, that you would steer us from wrongdoing, from wrong beliefs. Um, and God, we, we ask that this morning the scripture would, would penetrate us, um, that God, it would penetrate me. Um, that it would penetrate every person who's engaged with us this morning. So God, we love you and, and help us to understand this passage just a little bit more, more this morning. In your heavenly name we pray. Amen. So we're going to discuss this passage. And this passage depends on a lot of things. It depends on what we're bringing into this morning. It depends on what we know already about the passage. It, it depends on reading the, the entirety of chapter 15, the previous chapter that we've just gone through. This parable goes so well with the end of chapter 15, the, the, the parable of the prodigal son coming home, and, and the father is rejoicing because the son that was gone is, is now home, and he spares no expense. And the, the whole of chapter 15 is this like beautiful, heartwarming, loving love story through parables to us, to God's people. It, it, the ch- whole of chapter 15, you, you walk away from it and you're just going, man, my God loves me so much. My heavenly father loves me so much. This is crazy. I don't deserve this. He, 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 he never stops chasing after me. I cannot believe how much my God loves me. And then you get to this passage. We're in a totally different ballgame right now. This is the same God that we're talking about. This is the same heaven. This is the same hell. This is the, the same everything, the same book of the Bible, but suddenly everything's different. The tone has changed, right? If you reread through this parable and think about it like, like one of those eerie movies that you watch where you're like, you know you're uncomfortable, but you don't know why you're uncomfortable. You ever watch a movie like that? That's why movies are, are fun. It engages something in us where we go, why am I feeling this way? Maybe it's the music or maybe it's, it, it's the imagery and these things are like, you're, you're watching, you're going, ah, something's not right here. Something, something's not right here and so I, I, I need to reconcile with what I'm experiencing right now. Last month was, was, was Christmas, and I got to spend a lot of time with my family because we had two weeks of RSV. It's like a respiratory virus. So two weeks of my whole family being sick, and it was wonderful. Not having child care and not being able to go out and staying bunkered down. And so we watched a lot of TV. We watched a lot of movies, and, and Maverick has different rewards for different things, my three-year-old son. And so he got a reward one day. We sat down on the t- we sat down on the couch. We turned on the TV, and I had the bright idea because Christmas was only like a couple weeks away. I had the bright idea that uh, uh, we should watch a Christmas Carol, and not just any version of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. We should watch my favorite version, which was the Muppets' Christmas Carol. <laughs> now I th- I say that because I think about A Christmas Carol every time I read this passage. 
Because on the surface, you get some of those same themes. You get, you get there, there's a heaven and a hell, and there, there's a cost, and someone's calling out saying, like, I don't want to die. I don't want to experience this. And what happens in a Christmas carol, right? Most of us have seen it. We have, like, the three spirits. It ends with the ghost of Christmas past. Ebenezer Scrooge wakes up to where he has been so wrong and so wicked, and there's salvation for him. He turns it around in the end, right? Like, there's, some, there's some exciting ending where it's like, oh my gosh, it's a totally different person. People don't recognize him. He has a second chance on life. That does not happen here. It does not happen here. The implications are terrifying. And in the same way, this Muppets movie, I'll, I'll break the secret, the Muppets movie terrified my son. It terrified my son because I, uh, he loves a specific version of Muppets. He watches Muppet Babies. If you have young, peop- young kids at home, little ones, Muppet Babies, it's actually pretty funny. It's like, it's really good. They, they sprinkle in some like adult jokes in there. And you're like, oh my gosh, like they're speaking to the whole audience, okay? And so it's versions of Muppets, but they're babies and it's animated and they're in daycare and they go on, they do all these little silly things in their childcare format. Like, it's very silly. It's very cute. I turn on a Muppets Christmas Carol, and it is dark and snowy, and these Muppets soon come out walking alongside real human beings. These Muppet puppets are walking alongside dirty and gross and real hair and fur, like puppets that were left out in the sun and in the garbage can over the summer for, like, months on end, and they come out, and Maverick's eyes just get huge, like... This is not the Muppets that I know. (laughs) Something has happened. What happened to you? Like, (laughs) this is your brain on drugs. And like, you see now suddenly the Muppets. It rocked his world. It scared him so much that he said, I thought I knew these things, but something is not right here. And ultimately, that's what we're supposed to walk away from this parable thinking today. We're supposed to walk away saying, something is not right. Where do I fit into this equation? What what am I holding on to? What do I believe that I believe when I encounter this same situation as either the rich man or either Lazarus, where am I going to fall? What does my situation look like? What does death look like for me? We're supposed to have a very real look at this passage and place ourselves into it. So we're going we're gonna to open this up. We're going to start diving in. We're going to be looking at these parables. And we have to remember these parables, every parable that comes out of Jesus' mouth, according to this, the, the, the Gospels, we're supposed to be looking at these parables as if it's like a picture language of what Jesus is accomplishing. They're not just nice little stories. They're not stories that are meant to scare us or, or you know, put us into fear or submission. These parables are supposed to be picture words that put, start playing the movie in our mind of like, here's what Jesus is doing. Here is what he's accomplishing in the world. Here's what the new kingdom of God looks like now that the prophets and the law and Moses and everything has led to completion through Jesus. That's what we are supposed to look at when we're looking at these parables. So we encounter this parable in a completely different way. Like I said in chapter 15, if you have time this week, go home, read chapter 15. It's really fast. You get the parable of the lost coin. You get the parable of the lost sheep. You get the parable of of the the prodigal son who comes home. It's so heartwarming. 
it's wonderful. It makes, it makes us walk away feeling like, oh, this is so good. But now we're in a different place. And now we have to think about this in a different way. So let's jump in and let's dive, let's dive in. If you, are, if you have your Bibles, uh, it is Luke, cha- uh, Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31. So I'm going to jump in at, at verse 19. And I'm reading out of the ESV. If, if you have a, a, any of the Bibles in front of you in the seat backs, those are also ESVs. So just something to note. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So much like a movie, we have the stage being set. We have our characters. We get to look at who they are and what are they experiencing and and is there some fault for this experience? What did they do? Did they do anything at all? Is it their fault or not? We're starting to get an idea of who these people are and we start to see, first and foremost, we see the rich man and we see the poor man. We see how vastly different their lives are from one another, right? It's about as opposite as you can get. Two completely different poles of the universe with these two people. And we get a picture of the rich man. We talk about his clothes and he's not wearing his Sunday best. Okay. He has a Sunday best for every day of the week. And he has like extras if he leaves one somewhere or he stains one. He has Sunday best for every single day. He has the best clothes that anyone can buy. And there's a lot of like seriousness when it talks about the the color purple here. It was really expensive. It was really expensive to make that color purple. It came from like snails in the ocean that secreted a very small amount of this oil that was purple. It took a lot to make this purple. It it even says like a lot of the temple temple workers, the, the Pharisees, they would have to have one strand of purple in their garments just to show the significance of the importance of that garment. And this man's got a whole wardrobe of that color. This man is well off. The Greek words that are used here are a lot of like resplendent and sumptuous. And I want to note something really important here. I, I want to note something that whether this is the first time that you're going through this parable or maybe the hundredth time that you're going through this parable, I want to cover both. I want to cover it like it's the first time and this is all new to you. Or the, I've been through this a lot. Tell me something new. I want to cover both. And so one of the things that I didn't get until later on in my life about this parable, one of the things I didn't realize and, and looked over is that th- this, this, this man, he wasn't dressing extravagantly. This man, he wasn't living outside of his means. This man wasn't audacious in, in what he was wearing to catch the attention of others and to say, look at me and put on a front and pretend like he's bigger than, than he really was. This man wasn't being over the top. This man was simply living and existing within his means. This man was living within his means because he had a lot of money. Some of you have a lot of money. Some of you know people that have a lot of money. And oftentimes, those people live within their means. Every so often, you find the people that have just an insane amount of money, but they live within a means that's like, like almost like self-deprecating, you know what I mean? But most of the time, people live within their means, and they should live within their means. And this man did exactly just that. 
He lived within his means, just as in the Roman culture of his time and the culture of today. He simply lived within his means. So what, what, what Luke is making the point here and what ultimately Jesus is making the point here in his parable is that being rich and living within your means is not a sin. Being rich and working hard and taking care of your family and enjoying the fruits of that labor is not a sin. It's not evil in and of itself. Being rich and living within your means is not where this man gets it so wrong. It's not where he gets it so wrong. And we're going to figure out where it is. We want to know now. Because ultimately, by the end of this parable, we want to put ourselves in one of the position of the two people in this parable. Because ultimately, we will be. You will be. I will be in the position of one of these two men in this parable. So it behooves us to not be on the losing end of this, right? So let's look at it. Let's look at it. Then we meet Lazarus. Uh, It's it's important to note that this is the only parable where Jesus actually uses someone's name. Uh, So where you pull that importance of, I don't know. I think just all parables are really important, whether it has someone's name in it or not. There's a lot of connections of like people have said, this name means this, or maybe this this name is related to to Jesus in some way. No, uh, we, we don't know. We don't know. But it's important because names are important. So we meet Lazarus, and we could spend a whole time dissecting that, but let's move into the big things. We meet Lazarus, and he's described as basically the most pitiful contrast to the rich man that we could possibly imagine. Lazarus landed at the rich man's gate, whether by choice or that's just where his body gave up, and desiring only the scraps from the rich man's table. And so whether the rich man likes it or not, which I would assume he did, did not like it, Lazarus is a part of the rich man's world. He's here to stay. He's not going anywhere. And the rich man, in turn, lends him no aid. No aid whatsoever. But this is the point of Jesus' parable. So let's continue. Let's see where this unfolds. Verses 22 through 23, it says, The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, this is where the story takes a a swift turn, right? We're, we're, We're now seeing an image of these two men dying these two men being buried, and these two men suddenly being separated by the biggest separation that we could possibly imagine. These two men are separated, and we see that Lazarus, for as little as we know about him, for some reason, this man is carried away by angels to Abraham's side. Whatever the specific injustices are against Lazarus here, And whatever of that blame falls on the rich man, none of this is made right in this lifetime. This is a big note. And this is something that I've had to learn as I've grown and realized just how awful life can be sometimes, how difficult it can be sometimes. This is a lesson that's good to know in the here and now. Whatever those injustices are against Lazarus and whatever fault was at the hand of the rich man, none of those things are resolved in this life. Pretty pretty comforting, right? 
compared to chapter 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin. Our father loves us so much. Look at the lengths that our father would go to rescue us in this lifetime and the next. And we get then here in chapter 16, sometimes things don't get fixed in this life. Sometimes it sucks. Sometimes it is just a struggle and agony every day until you die. Like, well, okay, Uh, this is depressing. This is depressing. This is scary. But we see two totally different outcomes. We don't see any more suffering on behalf of Lazarus. We see a totally different situation. Lazarus has been rescued by the angels. He's been rescued by the angels and placed at, right next to Abraham. The bosom of Abraham, the, the image that we're supposed to walk away with here, the bosom of Abraham, is supposed to be like an image of, of a mother nursing her child. Perfect comfort. And the Greek word that's used here is kolpos. It's the same word that's, being, that, that's used later on in the Gospels about the intimacy that Jesus has with his father. Like, th- this is something else. Th- th- it doesn't get any better than what Lazarus is experiencing right now. It's two totally different outcomes. I want to point out something really important also that, uh, that I only came across a, a matter of a couple years ago when I, when I read this for, felt like the 20th or 30th or 40th time. This is a really important note. If you're taking notes, the rich man was buried. The rich man was buried. In, in, in Judaic culture, if someone was dishonorable, if someone was a criminal, if someone was, was left by their family because they were just an awful person, that they, they, didn't, they deserved what they got, maybe they were killed, maybe they were put to death. If, if that person was dishonorable, then ultimately the family would just discard the corpse. They would not take those corpses, they would not take those bones by the ancestors because it, 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 would, it would be like a stench that never left the family name. That's not what happens here. This man, this man was buried by his family, not because he was guilty or not because the world thought that he was a bad guy. Probably the world admired him. Probably the world would respond to him just like they would probably respond to me and you. I've never killed anybody. I I try not to hurt people. I try to work hard for my family. I enjoy some me time here and then. But I work hard for my family so that they can be comfortable and that they can be happy. I try to be an honorable man. And honestly, that's probably what this guy did. He worked hard for his family. He, He made money to take care of his family. And he was buried because he was respected. He was respected by his family. He was probably respected by culture. So what kind of life did this man lead? Probably a a life a lot like yours and mine, which is why this should start to get really scary to us, right? It should start to get really real here. This man was a lot like you and I. But Jesus is saying here, as clear as day, this man missed the point. This man missed something really important. And it's not what the world's going to tell you, and it's not what your gut is going to tell you. This man missed something really important. And it was this, the callous refusal on behalf of the rich man was what dramatically reversed eternity. 
The callous refusal, the rich man refused what was put right in front of him, which was essentially made his responsibility. But the the rich man said, "I I don't need any part of this. I got bigger fish to fry. I have other things that I need to do. It's important to note here also that, that in Second Temple Judaism, one of the big beliefs was that after you died, your spirit would go into one of these like in-between places. And we're seeing these places right now. We're seeing basically like a heaven and basically like a hell. And this chasm was indeed a, a separation that no one could cross. That if you were up there, you couldn't get down there. And if you were down there, you could not get up there. And the whole point was was to be looking outward and to have your situation increase in intensity, the reality of of what was happening. That your vision, looking away at the heavens or looking down at hell, was to, in Lazarus' case, increase his joy. It was meant to increase his joy in saying, praise God for where I am right now. Praise God for, for, this, for this rescuing that has happened. And if you were in the case of the rich man, you would look out and you would say, I am in anguish. What could I have done? Rescue me, God. Cross this chasm. It was to increase, honestly, the torment of their experience. This wasn't their final state. This was just prior to judgment. Prior to judgment, this time here was, was, was meant to be the final realization, that final moment before being judged before the Lord. So let's keep reading. Let's dive in and see what happens next. Verse 24, and he, the rich man, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, Remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Now we start to see the real evidence of who this man is. This isn't a man, we, we don't care about what he did in his life. We don't care about how he made his money or if he was nice to people or ultimately we don't care about what the world thought about him because we see that the outcomes of eternity don't really depend on what the world thinks about us in the here and now, right? Right? So we see the real evidence of who this man really is. He calls out Father Abraham, which is important. We're going to go back to that. Leaning on the hope that he probably had his entire life. This was a Jewish man. This Jewish man grew up in Jewish culture. His parents were Jews. He understood who this Abraham was. And he, and he calls out and he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And then send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue. Just as his life of luxury didn't attend to the needs of Lazarus, his life of luxury did not attend to the commands of God. Not in the slightest. He probably, maybe like a lot of people I know, unfortunately, 
And a lot of people you might run into on the street, they, they believe that, well, I'm, you know, I grew up in a Christian home and I think I'm going to go to heaven for that. You know, I, I, I went to Bible school when, when I was in college or I went to Sunday school when I was a kid. And so I think I'm going to go to heaven when I die. This man was a lot like that. I grew up in a Jewish household. I know the Jewish rules and laws and teachings like the back of my hand. I am going to go to heaven for that. And Jesus, this parable that Jesus is giving, he's saying, he missed the point. He missed it entirely. He missed that connection between the mind and what you know and what your heart truly believes and who sits on the throne of that heart and who guides and rules your life. He missed that point completely. The reality surrounding this description of the chasm and anguish and fire is honestly terrifying because it's terrifying. It sounds terrifying and it sounds eerie and it sounds weird and kind of spooky because it is. It is terrifying. It is spooky. And the worst part about all of it is it's real. (laughs) That we, you and I, one day will be in the shoes of one of these two men after we die. But this should be like a, a, a wake-up call, especially if you've never read this parable before. Like, this is coming. Where is your heart? What do you believe? Who sits on the throne in your life? Maybe these are questions that you were hoping you weren't going to get today, and I pity you for that. <laughs> I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news and the deliverer of discomfort. But this is something we have to think about. The decisive issue concerning eternity for you and I and the rich man and Lazarus is not wrongdoing. It's not wickedness. It's not even really sin. It's neglect of all of that. To neglect that sin, to say, this isn't my problem. I'm okay. The world thinks I'm okay. I've got a lot of resources. A lot of people say I'm good. I believe in my heart of hearts that everything's going to be fine when I die. It's not wickedness, it's not wrongdoing, it's neglect that ultimately determines this man's eternity. And it's determined, and we see the same thing that happens for Lazarus. Jesus is saying your position in death is dependent on what you, le- what you believe right now in your life. And you can choose to be like a rich man who believed that the order of things and how stuff worked in life is going to be the same order of things in death that there are two groups, the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor, and then when I get into heaven, that, that, that system will exist there too, and I will be in the haves. It, we see this. We see evidence of this belief. Like I'm not just speaking in without knowing. This is exactly what we know the rich man believes. He says, send Lazarus, this slave man that could have been my slave when I was existing in, in, on earth, send this man to serve me like a servant and quench my thirst. He still doesn't get it. Does is is that blow your mind too? He, where else could you be to get it other than in Hades in torment. He still doesn't get it. It's supposed to be kind of like awe-inspiring, like, wow, I cannot believe he would say that. But the heart is pretty incredible, how it can lie to us, right? (laughs) 
the facade that it can build up to say, you got this, you're great. You don't need to relinquish that throne of your life. You don't need to give your life over really fully to Jesus. You don't have to do these things. You'll be fine. You're covered. The heart is just is so capable of lying, and it is so hard to change. And we see that, la- that the rich man's life, his heart is still not changed. The alternative is we can accept what has already been foretold. The, the difference is of what Lazarus experienced in his life is we can accept what is foretold in the law, we can accept what was told by the prophets, and we can relinquish our, our tight grip on our life in the here and now and participate in the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. We start to kind of like see this really happening, images like the movie plays in our mind. We can participate in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, or we can hang on to what we what our heart tells us. Let's keep reading. Verse 27. Then he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should arise from the dead. In other words, the rich man is saying, Please, please, Father Abraham, if God had just done a better job, I wouldn't be in this situation. I mean, have you honestly, have you ever like kind of had that thought in the back of your mind? I know I have as a believer, as a pastor, (laughs) God, if you had just, if you just done a better job at communicating this, we wouldn't be in this situation. God, if you would just make it like really clear, there wouldn't be any doubt that you're Lord. There wouldn't be any doubt of, of who should sit on this throne of my life. There There wouldn't be any more question. If you just, if you just, God, if you'd just done your job better. And I love Abraham's response in this parable. How calm, how calm and steady is this? This is why it's supposed to feel kind of eerie. Like in a movie where someone's talking very monotone and you're going like, why do I feel so uncomfortable? Like, why is this building up in me? We're supposed to feel that right now. He says that, that God, if you had just done a better job, But Abraham's response is calming and it's reinsuring. And he says that the law and the prophets are not simply just for us a part of the Bible that doesn't really matter anymore. Like, like, it's not like a part of the owner's manual where you pull it off and like, I don't need French, I don't need Spanish, I don't need German, I'm just gonna keep the part that I need, English. Because it's not important. And I wouldn't, and it doesn't really make any sense either. It's, saying, it's not saying that, that the law and the prophets are, are outdated or irrelevant. No. Jesus is making a very serious point. He's saying that the prophets and the law are the inseparable proceeding of the kingdom of God that is happening through Jesus right now. They cannot be separated. They foretold what was going to happen. 
That if we, if we made this law and we followed the commands of these prophets, that we would see Jesus coming from a mile down the road and say, that's who we've been waiting for. This is, this is the God-man. This is he, the son of God who has come to, to, to wipe every tear away. Th- that's him. I know it. I've been learning about him my whole life. Jesus has ushered in this kingdom of God right now. And the rich man's final response is essentially the nail in his own coffin. It's the, it is the perfect case against him. It clearly details what he believes. There's no more pretending. There's no performances. Essentially, he says, no, no, the, the, the law and the prophets, that's not enough. Religion, it's not enough. There has to be something bigger. There has to be something more convincing than just a bunch of rules and things that you have to do. There has to be something bigger, God. It can't be just religion. And the funny thing is, is sort of, in a way, the rich man kind of gets it right right here. (laughs) There has to be more, right? There has to be more than religion. There has to be more than just the law as it stood. There has to be more than just the prophets. Like there's got to be something more. But the something more that this man is looking for is not the something more that Jesus delivers. The something more that this man is looking for is a sort of miracle that he and his brothers would understand and repent and be spared from punishment. The type of miracle that he's looking for is not the miracle that Jesus is here to deliver. The rich man now understands this. He gets it kind of right, but completely for the wrong reasons. So what is this man asking for? I think the, the passage makes it clear that the rich man wants from religion that, uh, that doesn't change his heart. It doesn't change his actions. A, re- a religion that spares him from ultimately the consequences of his actions. And if we look at this parable just on the surface, whether maybe it's the first time or we've never dived into this parable before, that Jesus is saying, ultimately, don't make wealth the highest good in your life. That, that, that's the outer layer of the onion. If we have just a couple minutes to go through this parable, don't make wealth the single good in your life, the highest thing that you're trying to achieve. But this parable goes so much deeper than that. There are so many more layers to unpack. He's saying, don't make that the highest thing in your life. But if, honestly, I want to say something. If that is your belief today, that's okay. I don't want you to stay there, but that's okay. If your belief today is that, well, I'm kind of in the same boat. I believe that my religion has spared me from what I would experience in hell, and so I'm covered. And I live my life like I, how I want to. I make decisions for myself. It's pretty clear who sits on the throne of my life. If that's where you are today, I'm going to say, all right, that, that's a pretty good start. I'm going to tell you right now, you cannot stay there. There is danger. We're seeing it literally like a movie of the danger that awaits us if we live our lives like that. The rich man got it really wrong. He missed something really important. And there is a risk for you and I and everyone to make that same mistake and end up in the same place. This should be terrifying if we stay in that camp of belief. 
One day we'll find ourselves in a position either of the rich man or of Lazarus. And ultimately what we're going to need is someone to advocate for us. That's ultimately what the rich man is asking for here. He's saying, please, Father Abraham, be my advocate. You know me, man. You know me. You know I'm good. I, you, you, I, I've, I've, I've talked to you my whole life. You know me. I, I'm, my family's Jewish. I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish for gosh sakes. Like, you know me, man. Be an advocate for me. In the same way, Lazarus has an advocate. Who is it? It's Abraham. It's God. He was taken there, and he cannot cross over any longer. We need to have an advocate ready prepared to give an account to say, I know who this guy is. I know who this lady is. I know their heart. I know them deeply. And there's nothing hiding under the surface. That advocate is Jesus. If you don't know that, that advocate is Jesus. We have to have Jesus as our advocate. There's no other way. There's no other way to get around this. We have to truly repent. We have to truly repent because it has to mean that we have adopted the law and the prophets like Abraham is saying here in this parable and we have adopted Jesus as the fulfillment of that law, of those prophets. The Pharisees who are hearing this being spoken by Jesus for the first time, they're hearing this parable and they're hearing that Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, it doesn't make any sense. They know the law. They know the prophets. They understand this. They don't know Jesus, which is the whole problem. Because Jesus' name and, and who he is and the image of his face is printed all across the Old Testament. It's printed everywhere. If you loved it and you digested it and you made it a part of your life, you would see the face of Jesus and you'd go, that's the one that we've been reading about. That's who we've been waiting for. Jesus is making the case here that it is time for you to change your ways, that there may not be any more time left. And ultimately, like this parable is saying, just do what the prophets and Moses have asked you to do. Just do it. Just follow the law. Just like in the fulfillment of the story of Israel, so is Jesus ushering in fulfillment on kingdom earth right now, in the here and now, in us. Jesus is ushering that. So, what is the rich man really asking for? The rich man is really asking for, for, a, for a way out. He's asking for something that can, can rescue him in the fourth quarter. And what my hope is for today is that you would be able to look at this and say, I want to revisit this again. Maybe it's this week. And I challenge you, if you don't at least in some degree, feel like how my son felt when he saw the real-life Muppets on the TV and go, whoa, this is not what I had in mind. This is not what I'm used to. This is challenging my understanding of the things I thought I held dear. That's what this passage should be doing. It should scare us. We should be able to walk away from this passage and go, thank God I know where I stand. <laughs> Thank God I know my advocate by name. I walk with him daily. I know exactly what he wants for me. And although I kind of creep back up on that throne every once in a while, 
And Jesus so kindly and so graciously and mercifully steps off of that throne to get out of my way. Even in that, I still require to step off of that throne and say, God, this is, this, this is all you. Jesus, you, you own everything. You own everything. And so, so my, my prayer for you is that this, this would, would stick to you this week. Like, like gum that you stepped on in, in the parking lot and it just like every step goes <laughs> and you'd think as with every step of this week and go like, ah, there, there, there's a heaven and there's a hell. I know these things are like, duh, for us as believers, but this is something that we should dwell on every day. There's a heaven and there is a hell and there's a wrong way to do it. And my neighbors and the people around me might say, you're doing a really great job but maybe they don't know the whole story. They don't know what's really happening down deep. They don't know who really runs this heart. I hope that that stickiness catches you with every step this week, that you, you would think about this. And ultimately, Pastor Jed, myself, any of the elders here, we would love to talk to, to you about this. If you said, I don't know what this means and I don't know where I land on this side of the, on one side or the other of the chasm, we want to talk with you. <laughs> we want to talk through this. Jesus is making a huge point with this parable. He's saying that, the, the, making the case that now is the time to change your ways, to simply do what Moses and the prophets have asked you to do. Because if we do that and we digest that and we love what God has given us first, there's no way that we look at Jesus and go, this is the completion of that. Jesus is the, the reason that all of this, that the, this hope can be found. So I want to pray and, and we'll wrap up with another song, but let's close our eyes as we digest this and, and pluck this chewing gum on our shoe so that we can feel it throughout this week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we, this is, this is not easy to understand. God, that, that you would lovingly place these images through words that we are to interpret as this is what Jesus is doing in the world and in my life. God, this, this can be kind of a challenge to unpack. And so God, I just pray that your spirit would be the one that starts to open up these truths and make them real in our hearts. That these words, as we've, as we've heard each one maybe once or twice this morning, that these words would stick with us <coughs> and that the spirit would whisper into our ear this week and say, I, I want this for you. I want you to dwell on this truth that, God, your spirit would be illuminating the dark alleys around us where we try to hide things and we try to distract and make ourselves the king of our lives. God, that, that your spirit would illuminate those places this week, that they would make them uncomfortable, maybe even to the point of unbearable. So, God, we just ask that you would continue doing a good work through this book of Luke as we unpack it and digest it for our lives. And God, thank you for the advocate. Thank you for your son. God, thank you for the blessing and goodness that is salvation through you. Only way. 
God, we did not deserve this. We deserve exactly what this rich man got. We deserve the life of Lazarus on earth and the outcome of the rich man. God, we're, we're so thankful. You are so good. God, we pray that everyone around us in this city would know that truth of how good you are and how faithful you have been. So God, hear our voices one last time today as we, we sing a song of worship to you. We ask all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.